Hey everybody, my name is Axel Villamil and we're back here at 24 Shades of Blue with Ryan Teschner. He is the Executive Director, Chief of Staff of the Toronto Police Services Board. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. For everybody that's listening, this man is suited up, head to toe, looking fire. Um, I mean, we're here on the sexiest topic alive. We are, we're something, we're talking about something that I don't think a lot of people really quite maybe understand or know too much about. So let's get right into it. What are the main tasks that the Toronto Police Service Board tackles? Well, I like to talk in analogies, so let me start with that. People should think of a police services board as uh, everything that you need in order to get a house ready. So you want to build a house, you need architects, you need structural engineers, you need bylaw enforcement people to make sure that you're complying. It's all about the design and the way that the house is going to look and feel and generally what the plans are going to be. It's really the role of the board. The board sets the priorities and objectives for the Toronto Police Service. It hires the chief and the command officers, it sets the budget every year, and it interfaces with the public to get a sense of what the priorities should be, all with a view to making sure that for our board in Toronto, there is adequate and effective policing uh, in the city. That's the role of the board. But you have to contrast that with something for the analogy to be complete. And so you think about what is then the police service, Police service for me is like all of the contractors and trades that come into the house and actually do the building according to the plan. The plumbers, the electricians, the drywallers, all of the people who have the expertise to make the house look the way that the plans were designed. Okay, that's a great analogy. Like, blew my mind just now. Well, that's uh, right. It's what you do. Um, I think what's, what's interesting is how you really put it as the contractor. So sometimes things don't go to plan or sometimes the... Uh, you know, the overarching architects need to change things or do stuff. What are, what are those things that may, um, the everyday person, general public like myself, may not know that the quote-unquote architects or the board does uh, that we may think of something else? Like, I just, I'm just so many questions. I don't know. No, for sure. Well, again, let's, let's talk about an example. Uh, so back when I was practicing law, uh, I was lead counsel to the G20 review that was done. So Toronto had a G20 summit in 2010, World leaders from all over the place came to Toronto. It was a big event, a lot of security requirements. It was multi-level, so RCMP, OPP, Toronto, and police services from across the country. Um, and we know from experience that unfortunately things didn't go very well. Uh, a lot of people thought that our review was going to be about what happened on the ground, what went right or wrong with the policing itself. But what we learned really quickly is that the board, as the governing body, and the oversight body didn't properly understand its role, didn't know that it had an obligation to ask what the plans were for the security and policing of the event. Show us the details. What legal agreements do we need? What policies do we need to make sure we have in place for, for example, prisoners and how we're going to process them? Those are all active questions that a governing body should be asking because, again, they are responsible for the plan. But once the plan is set, the chief and the service, according to Canadian law, need to have the independence to execute it because they are the policing experts. They know how to do that kind of work in a way that civilian governing bodies don't. And so that's the interface between the two. So I think a lot of people don't understand that on operations big and small, the board has a role to play. Interesting. I love the how we're speaking in analogies, by the way. I think let's, I would love to talk about it in terms of a business or management analogy where we have micromanagement, you have the ones that are laid back and go, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, just get it done type of thing. 
in this case, how is that board's relationship with, you know, the people that are actually on the ground? Like, do you, how far do you micromanage? How not yeah. much do you micromanage? You know, what, what does that relationship look like, especially today? It's a good question. So technically, what a lot of people also may not know is the board is this, the employer for every single member of the police service, from the chief all the way down to the new recruit coming in as a constable. Every single member of the service. But the board can only direct one member of the service, and that's the chief. And that's codified right in the Police Services Act. And there's a reason for that. Police services are paramilitary organizations. They operate according to command and control. The last thing that you want when the stakes are so high is for members of the board going out to the constable who's about to execute that warrant or about to arrest that person or engaged in a human trafficking investigation and telling them how to do their job. That's the role of the chief, his command officers, and all of the layers below it. And so the board takes the information it gets from the chief, uh, assesses it, and again, that's where the direction goes. And once the direction is set, whether it's through priorities and objectives that they set, whether it's through the budget that the police board sets every year, the chief now is that contractor heading up the entire service. And it's their job to execute uh, in compliance with those priorities and those objectives. So I get those objectives is that feedback, basically. So those goals, if those goals aren't met or, you know, there's some variance that seems off, that's when you start to actually go in and, and, and chat more with that person, which is the chief, right? That's right. So, you know, police boards have two roles. They're a governing body like a board of directors is a governing body of a, co of a company or of a hospital. But they also have an oversight function. So the governance function for me is what, what happens before the event, before the operation, sort of in the day-to-day. -day. It's setting those plans. The oversight function, that's the stuff that happens afterwards, whether it's because something didn't go well or whether it's because something went well and we want to apply those lessons to future events. And so the board has that twofold dimension to its role. Uh, and so pick your issue, whether it's the budget every year, which has been very topical, whether it's police reform, whether it's missing and missed, uh, the review that took place after the various people uh, were found unfortunately and tragically dead uh, related to the gay village. All of that work has a role for the board as the entity that governs and oversees and a role for the service in how it operationalizes it. I think one of the things I've always been wondering is it, it seems like you're going after the fact that you see the numbers if there's if it's not meeting its requirements, that's when action's handled. Do you think the board needs more checkup time or do, as the public, do we not know if there's more time or, or instances where the board's checking in going, hey, chief, how you doing? Let's see how the numbers are. Rather than like the reviews are maybe quarterly or, or annually. Um, how does it work? So the board meets uh, up to uh, 10 times a year. Oh, wow. Okay. So almost monthly. Uh, and these are public meetings. So any member of the public can and does tune in. Uh, members of the public see the agenda a week in advance. They know all of the items that are on there. So let's talk about the board meeting that just happened. Mm -hmm. We talked about bail reform. We talked about missing and missed and the recommendations arising from that review. Uh, we, we put in place new policies with respect to our employees. Uh, we talked about the budget. I mean, that was in just one meeting. And we had members of the public call in, express their views, either in favor of the recommendations that the chief was putting forward or that me and my office was putting forward against those recommendations, 
other suggestions and ideas. And the board really is the broker. They take all of that information and then they ultimately are the decision maker. And sometimes not everyone's going to agree with that decision, but that's democracy. The idea is that they're the guardians. They're the ones who are engaged regularly. And so that's one form in which all of that happens aside from any specific review or initiative. But there are obviously others. And that's where I think uh, my team comes into play. So the board has a professional staff uh, and we have a dedicated team in our office and they do this work every single day. And so pick your initiative, whether it's police reform, whether it's the budget, pick your topic. Uh, Our team is there every day engaging with the service, engaging with the subject matter experts, asking questions, making suggestions, and really trying to collaborate to get the best results for the public. Yes, the public, right? I think it's the transparency. I think that's what's, I mean, personally, I always use it, this misconception of, of what is actually happening versus what's available to actually like interact with, which is clearly it's a public, you know, meeting and a week and a half. Wow, that's a lot of lead time. Um, how does that relate? into the importance of the civilian police governance in Canada in terms of like how this whole interaction with the public goes? Well, I think that's where the magic actually happens. So a lot of people have heard of Sir Robert Peel and he's viewed as the father of modern day municipal policing. And people talk about Peel's principles and the nine principles. And the one that everyone always quotes is the police are the public and the public are the police. And that's an important one. But the reality is the governing body is that public, right? Uh, We are, we are, really trying to make sure that we, uh, at the end of the day, create trust between the police and the public. Because the other principle that people often don't talk about, that Peel articulated, is that the police really are doing on a full-time basis what's incumbent on all of us as members of society to do, which is to create safe communities. That's the role of the police. And so the othering that has unfortunately happened as a result of recent events, I think, has taken us a little further away from that principle. But really, the role of the board is to build, enhance, and sometimes repair trust between the public and the police so that they can see one another in one another. What happens when it does work well and it doesn't? Like, I see, like, it could really be bad. It could be really be good. What happens when, or how does the board handle that? Well, we only need to go back uh, a couple of years to the summer of 2020. And I think it's an illustration of um, where things uh, got heated uh, and how the public engaged, how the board engaged. But also, I think it's a story about how the board really did fulfill its role in terms of building public trust. So after the death, uh, the murder of George Floyd in the United States and the murder of others, uh, that have, that resulted from interactions with the police and also events here in Toronto. Uh, people marched, people protested, people engaged in campaigns talking about defund, detask, abolition. And what this board did was it embraced that discussion. So the board had a four-day set of virtual town halls, virtual because of the pandemic. We heard from hundreds of members of the public who participated in those sessions or came in with written submissions with their ideas about what was working well in Toronto policing, what wasn't working well, and where the board should pay its attention and its time. And as a result of that public consultation and engagement, our own research from our professional team in our office, the submissions and ideas of the service, the board adopted 81 recommendations for police reform. 81 recommendations that we said were only the beginning. They weren't meant to be the beginning and the end. Reform should be an evergreen thing 
that is always the focus and attention of a police board. And so those 81 recommendations are moving through implementation, but we're also doing other things. And so unfortunately from tragedy and from situations where the public's trust in the police was perhaps at one of an all-time low, we were actually able to engage through the board and demonstrate uh, how we could repair and enhance that public trust. And that's a journey. That's a journey. I'd love to ask you a personal question. Sure. During that time, I know we're talking about the board and you're very much a representation of the board here. How do you feel? Like, that was probably a very stressful time. I would say it's one of the most stressful times professionally that I've ever had. Part of it is how I'm built. Uh, you know, this isn't just a job for me. It is a passion. I, I view it a little bit as a calling. I believe fundamentally in these principles. I think that they are the secret ingredients to how we have a healthy and vibrant democracy. Uh, but at the same time, when you have people who have experienced great tragedy, who may not really understand exactly why things happen the way that they happen, not have all the answers, maybe not have all the information, or sometimes when they do, um, these are human beings. They've lost loved ones. And so it is impossible for me, I think, to separate that reality from the work that we do. I actually think perhaps that's a good thing. Uh, I think it, it, it's a good compass to have. But the reality is police have extraordinary powers in our society. Uh, they can arrest, they can detain, and sometimes they can even use lethal force when it's appropriate. We give no one else those powers. And so the role of the board is to protect the trust that communities have to have in the police, to engage in those activities properly, and act as a check and balance. And so even at the most stressful times, that's what I try and remind myself. And if that becomes my compass, my beacon, uh, then hopefully uh, we're on the right path. Well, it's a perfect segue. You know, as you spoke about that, there's these extreme powers that the police has. What, you know, how is a process um, of consequences determined when an officer breaks the law? How does the board deal with this? So in a number of different ways. Uh, the board is actually the legal entity for the police. That's also something that perhaps a lot of people don't know. You can't sue the Toronto Police Service. You sue the Toronto Police Service's board. And so that's one forum of accountability. Uh, and yes, there's lawsuits and litigation uh, where the board and the service are to answer uh, for the actions and activities and sometimes the omissions of police. And that's the case for every police board and commission right across the country. But there are other forums as well. Uh, I do think that we have a healthy um, uh, kind of framework of accountability of policing in Ontario. We have a public complaints body called the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. Any member of the public who has an interaction with a police officer, any kind of interaction, can make a public complaint if they're not satisfied with the way that interaction went. And that independent office will assess the complaint investigate the complaint or have a police service investigate the complaint. And then there may be consequences that flow if the finding of misconduct is substantiated. And then, of course, we've got the SIU, where police do use force, uh, shoot somebody, uh, engage in other uh, force. There is an independent investigation, criminal investigation, that occurs with criminal charges laid if they establish that there was wrongdoing. And I think that that's a good framework. I think it puts in place the relevant uh, accountability so that members of the public, again, the public that we serve, that should see themselves in the police, know that no matter what happens, there will be an objective assessment of what occurred 
and where appropriate, there will be accountability. So you talk about assessment and we're talking about also early in the conversation about micromanagement. It seems like there has to be this nice, elegant level where uh, the board needs to play. Why is it that the Toronto Police Services uh, board should not be involved in individual cases? Because I feel like a lot of the public's probably like, oh, why aren't they, in, why aren't they intervening? Um, but I feel like there's a reason. There is a reason. There's a good reason. And it's a, it's a bedrock of our legal framework for policing. We don't want uh, individual members who happen to be on the police services board. And remember, the police services board is made up of seven people. Uh, it, right now, as we speak, it's the mayor, two city councillors, uh, a citizen that's appointed by city council in Toronto, and three members that are appointed by the province. Each come from their own walks of life, have their own individual preferences. We don't want a system where anybody can use that incredible power of being on a board uh, in favor or against a particular person or a particular cause. That's why the independence of the police is so important. So there's a safety net here. Absolutely. And you're right. That balance to strike is vital. It's another one of those compasses that we have to keep in front of us and keep guiding us. But at the end of the day, we want to ensure that when the police make a decision about who they're going to arrest, which house they're going to search, which uh, gang they may need to take down, any of the decisions that the police have to make and use their incredible powers for, we want them to be the ones making that decision independently, without favor, uh, and, and you know, guided by the, the, the principles of law that matter so much. I would like to touch upon the 2012 Morden report uh, and how significant is Toronto's policing on that? So Judge Morden's report was really a reset for police services boards because up until that point, boards took the position generally that when it came to the operations of the police, they weren't really supposed to ask any questions. They weren't supposed to get any details. And a lot of chiefs thought that that was the way that it was supposed to be. Not because they were being malicious about it. It was just a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the board as a governing and oversight body. And so what Judge Morden's report really stands for, the, the real contribution that is made to police governance in uh, Canada, really, is that it is absolutely at the heart of a board's role to ask those questions, to ask for the plans, to know, for example, with the G20, how are we going to keep all of these international leaders safe? What's the plan? You're working with the RCMP and the OPP. Who's calling the shots and on what issue so that there's no confusion? We know that there's going to be protests. How are we going to facilitate people's constitutional right to express themselves and balance that against security and safety risks? These are all questions that boards should be asking about major events and sometimes smaller events. And Judge Morden made clear that now was the time that they had to embrace that rule. You think Morden's report changed the way the board is today? I think it absolutely did. And I think, again, that's a journey. Uh, it's not always easy to strike that right balance, but it did create that reset. And not just for the Toronto Police Services Board, for boards and police commissions, which is sometimes how boards are referred to in other provinces right across the country. I can tell you right now, that I regularly get asked questions, asked for input, asked for advice from boards all the way from Halifax to Vancouver. And that's because they are starting to realize that they do have a tall order to meet, an important order to meet. Uh, and so I think it has absolutely contributed to that reset that's so important. Any body with so much power requires constant evaluation. And I feel like, and also this this board is full of humans, right? We're all learning as we go. Obviously, it's a very stressful situation, but like the report did, it, it gave 
everybody to step back, evaluate, and reassess to be better. Uh, what I loved is my mom was working, you know, in the hospital district area. And what TPS did really well during the Freedom Convoy was really close it off. Um, and I feel like this is a very, this was a huge topic in Canada, massive. It went to the US, you know, I'm listening in on Joe Rogan's podcast. He's talking to this Canadian guest going, what's going on down there? How did the service board handle the Freedom Convoy? I feel like that was another situation where you're probably sweating a little bit. Listen, the, the stakes, I think, are always high. Yeah. Uh, we we did exactly what Morden directed. I think that's that's an important lesson to learn from the Freedom Convoy. So rather than waiting until after the operation was over and asking, why did this happen this way or why did this happen that way, the board was engaged right from the beginning. And so the chief uh, provided the operational plan, identified what the priorities for the operation were going to be, which included right at the top, making sure that access to hospitals uh, was maintained completely for patients, for the staff, and for visitors. And uh, the board had all of that in front of them, were able to ask questions, were able to ensure that the legal framework for the operation was in place, that the right policies were in place, and that it was clear what the objectives were going to be. And so it was really the lessons of Judge Morden from the G20 applied now in 2022. And thankfully, it was a successful operation where again, members of the public who wanted to peacefully protest had the opportunity to do that. But people who needed to go to the hospital were not precluded or prevented in any way from doing that. So I think it struck the right balance. Oh, great job. Well, great job to the chief in the service. Absolutely. Let's talk about the B word here, budget. Yes. Um, what are the tools that you and the board use when determining the yearly budget? I mean, like, again, whenever I think when our pre-call, we spoke about what defunding actually meant, which was you guys are defunded, right? The board's defunded, not the actual police. So let's talk about how we bring that budget to reality. So one of the roles the board has every year uh, is to set the budget for the police. Um, and so it needs to ask some questions about what the what the needs of the service are. How are we going to ensure that the service has the tools and the resources to do what it needs to do? But when we talk about resources, a lot of people watch police shows and they see the fancy toys and cars and machines. And sure, there's some of that that's needed in order to do their job. But 90% of the police budget in Toronto is people. It's the salaries for the men and women, sworn and civilian, who every day are out there doing the hard work to keep us safe. And so there is actually far less room, far less discretion, if you will, than people think. But more and more, the board is being guided by questions around what's lying around the corner. What is it that we have to anticipate and prepare for so that we can meet the next challenge that's coming at us? How can we measure success so that we know if crime trends are moving in a certain direction, what we've allocated in our budget is meeting that need? So take auto theft as an ex example. Auto theft was... Uh, a big problem leading right up to this last budget process. We're seeing even now an increased number of auto theft. And you can talk about all of the reasons why, whether it's organized crime or whether it's crimes of desperation uh, post-pandemic. But people's cars are being stolen and sometimes being used by organized crime to fund organized crime. It's absolutely a police mandate. And so as a result of seeing those trends and seeing what was happening in our communities, the board allocated funds within the budget through reallocation of existing resources to make sure that we could stand up a major crimes unit to deal not just with auto theft, but that as a priority. 
Uh, so that's an example of the board getting information from the chief and the service, seeing what's happening on the ground in our communities, what the priorities are, and determining what resources need to be allocated to address those priorities. Is it difficult? I mean, being proactive is never easy. There's a lot of data coming in, KPIs that I probably have no idea how you assess it and put into something. How, how do you go at consuming all this data from so many different sources and being able to use that in the budget? What's the, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to go detail in the process, but sure. maybe something high level. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that a budget process usually works is you start with the subject matter experts. So in this case, the chief and the whole organization, all of the units in the organization spend time leading up to the budget, identifying what the challenges are that they're trying to meet, what their needs are, what's their caseload, and how are they able to meet uh, the, the demand on them? What are some of the things coming around the corner? And they pull all of that together in a submission to the board that outlines all of that. And then we, the folks in my office and I, uh, kick the tires of it, if you will. Ask some tough questions, do our own research, speak to other experts, uh, and make an assessment. And we take all of that together and that ultimately comes before the seven member board who also ask some questions, hear from members of the public and other stakeholders. And then they ultimately have to make a determination. But remember, their determination is what is necessary to provide adequate and effective policing in the city of Toronto, a growing city, by the way. Uh, and so they've got to also think about growth in population, the complexity of that, diversity of our communities and the unique needs that that di diversity brings. They've got to take all of that together. And so it's not a magical formula by any means. It's a human formula. Uh, but I think it's it's the right process. I think you uh, put it perfectly. It's a human formula. And that is the whole basis of even this podcast. You know, I'll be honest with you. I was put into this during the height of it all. In you know, 2020, I was like, oh God, I don't know how I feel. Um, but I think as we did season one and now we're in season two and I'm talking to you, you know, at the highest level, at the highest level, I'm, you know, I feel, I don't know what the word is here. I feel very at ease to know that these facts and these processes are in place, that we're all humans here and we all got to treat each other humans, just, um, you know, doing it in the safest and the fairest way possible. So Ryan, I would, I would love to ask you any final thoughts you have for the general public that's listening. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, you talked about, and we talked throughout this discussion about the events south of the border, but right now really internationally, where public institutions are uh, being questioned. And I think it's healthy to question public institutions. I think it's healthy because uh, we, as in this case, the police board, a public institution, trust is something that we need to earn. We need to earn it every day. And we earn it by being transparent where we can about our decision-making, asking questions and engaging our communities in discussions about what they want to see from their police, making sure that the police service feels supported and that they're working in a safe environment. And that's the work that we do every day. So if I had to end on one final thought, I would say we want people to engage. That is the democracy that we have earned uh, and that we have to try and protect. And we do that by engaging with our institutions, sometimes asking tough questions, uh, but ultimately trying to make sure that we're building the safe communities that we all want to see. And at the end of the day, if we do that, that's what Peel was always talking about. Uh, so uh, it's it's about engaging and, and building that trust. Ryan Tashner, everybody, thank you so much for being here on the show and being very transparent and helping us earn that trust. So thank you, thank you.
That was 24 Shades of Blue, Maxwell Mill, and we're out. Thank <laughs> you.